here's the issue. God hardens people. The scripture is really clear on this issue. God actually does harden people. He hardens their hearts. That's what scripture teaches us over and over again. My question is like, what is meant by this? What is meant by the fact that God hardens people? And does that make us just mere pawns? And so I've spent a lot of time researching and studying this topic, looking at various passages that talk on the topic of God hardening, and I'm going to bring it all together tonight and try to share as much, as a, as much of it as I can with you guys. Um, so let me start with this. This is a big topic. It's an important topic, and I could be wrong on some detail. So I want you to notice the difference between what the scripture teaches and my understanding of it. You should always do that. You should always be letting scripture be the authority and me just be a... a, a a person who's commenting on it. I'm a commenter, a commentator, just a normal potato. Um, so I could be wrong, but this is my best understanding of the topic, and I'm trying to approach it with, with grace and, and wisdom. Um, I'm going to be teaching you guys a lot of stuff, and at the end, I'm going to summarize nine truths about hardening, about God hardening, that we learned from Scripture. So I'm going to go through all these verses, pull out all these truths, and then I'll summarize them at the end. So by the end, you should be like, ah, click. Uh, but it'll take a while for us to get there, so please be patient. Um, and here we go. So starting with a quick review of Romans 9 so far, so we can understand the passage that's about to talk about God hardening. The quick review of Romans 9, the, there's a problem that he brings up in the beginning of Romans 9, and it's this, that God has promises and a plan for Israel, but they haven't all been saved. They haven't all received Messiah. Not even the majority have received the Messiah, Jesus. Now, this, is, this might not seem like a big deal to you, but many Jewish people today, they'll reject Jesus like that simply based on the fact that the majority of Jews have not received him as Messiah. To them, that's all the evidence they need. Yeah, well, the Jews didn't all receive him as Messiah, so obviously he's not the Messiah. Closed book, don't even need to consider his credentials, don't need to consider the texts of the Old Testament, none of that stuff. That's, that, that's all I need to know. Um, so, Romans 9 is a great passage for explaining this issue. So, it starts off in verses 1 through 3, where Paul, this is just a summary, he, he just basically says he wishes they would be saved. His heart is breaking for them that they would be saved. He, he desires for it greatly, and I believe God also has that desire. Um, then he, in verses 4 and 5, talks about all these things God has for the Jewish people. His blessings upon the Jewish people, the, these these. These issues of the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the service of God, and the promises all belong to Israel. So I want them to be saved. God wants them to be saved. And God has all these promises. So you see the tension. He's building a case now as he continues through the chapter for why not all of Israel receives the gospel or even a majority. And so first in verses 6 through 9, and by the way, this case goes all the way through chapter 11. So it's going to be Continuing to build as we go. But in verses 6 through 9, he talks about how Isaac and Ishmael show us a contrast to demonstrate the Old Testament teaches that the selection of God, the choosing of God, the promise of God, does not fall to simply every physical descendant of Abraham. So it's not by blood alone. It's by promise. Then in verses 10 through 13, he talks about the issues of Jacob and Esau. And the point there is that it's not by works. Not by works. So verses 6 through 9, it is not by blood. Verses um, 10 through 13, it's not by works. We see that in verse 11. Not of works, but of him who calls. That the promise comes upon them. In verses 14 through 16, he demonstrates what it is from. What does God's promise fall upon us through? And it's of mercy. It comes through mercy. God has chosen mercy to be the vessel through which mankind will be saved. Not 
earning it, none of that sort of thing, not by birth. Um, now, this specifically, the examples that were given, Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, Esau, these, these examples are not about salvation. They're just about God's promises. But the application is about salvation. And in case I haven't lost you <laughs> already, I taught all this last week. So you could go online and you can get there. But I at least am showing you that there is a Jewish context in Romans that we need to be aware of to understand it properly. Um, I do think that Romans 9 is largely misunderstood by a lot of people. Not to say I'm the only one who's figured it out. I'm certainly not. But I think a lot have misunderstood it because of not recognizing this Jewishness. So the point is this. To the audience who cares about the Jewish people like God does, this is an explanation of why things are happening the way they are using Old Testament truths. So that the Jew is strategically drawn into accepting this Jesus Messiah and him not being accepted by Israel because the Old Testament said this is what was going to happen. And he'll keep doing this throughout the next couple chapters. Um, so God can offer salvation to anybody he wants, just like he did with the promises. He chooses who it goes to. And who does he choose to offer the promises to? Jews and Gentiles. And that's what he's building his case towards. Not a narrowing of the promise, but an expanding of it. It goes out, the, the promise of salvation in particular, goes out to all people by God's mercy, Jews and Gentiles. That's your spoiler alert. And it's not of works, and it's not by your blood. It's by God's mercy that you'll be saved. And then in uh, verse 32, it'll explain why the Jews in particular, many of them did not receive this gospel message. It's because they did not seek it by faith. So we'll talk about faith being instrumental. Okay, so that being said, um, I do think people make a, a major misstep, and maybe you're already there. You're like tuning me out like, oh my goodness, Mike. Can't you just keep it simple? Keep it simple, stupid. Haven't you heard that? K-I-S-S, Mike. And I'm like, well, sometimes it's not simple. <laughs> so how do I keep things simple that aren't? I'll give it in the simplest way I'm able to, but it, if it's not simple, it's not simple. And that's this passage. If you were, if you were Jewish, it might make more sense. So one major misstep people have in Romans or in other passages of scripture is they want the Bible to say everything all at once. They want every individual verse to have every doctrine that they need to know about, but to say it simply and in just a few words. So I don't have to worry and think about it much. That's a mistake. And it's obviously not possible. Um, really, Romans is building a step-by-step -step case and answering specific complaints along the way. So I encourage patience. Everything will come more and more into focus as you go from chapter 9 to chapter 10 to chapter 11. And then you go, oh, and it all, it all clicks. So if you're struggling with 9, continue reading through 10 and 11. It'll make more sense. Um, now what I want to do is read the passage we're focusing on tonight. With that background, that context in mind, starting in verse 17. It says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show pow my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. There's that concept of God hardening people. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, 
endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, if you didn't know that Jewish-Gentile context, that last verse wouldn't have really clicked, but it should be like, obviously... Obviously, because we understand the contextual applications of the Jewish and Gentile dynamics and the promises of Israel. And you're getting it, right? So, so good, you get it. Now, let's delve into what I want to focus on tonight, which is the hardening of God that is very clearly discussed in this passage. Um, we'll deal with some very specific questions. So, reading it again, verses 17 and 18, this is where it, it first comes up. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. God hardens. Now, the point that Paul's driving towards where he's going with this whole God hardens thing, he has a specific reason to bring it up. He's going to say that God has hardened Israel. And he's using the example of Pharaoh because, of course, the Jews are going to be like, yeah, obviously God hardened Pharaoh. Like, that's, man, that's Exodus 101. And he goes, yep, God can harden who he wants. That's right, he can. And he's hardened Israel, some of Israel. Oh, wait, wait, no. I mean, okay, maybe that's biblically Old Testament. Like, that's legit Hebrew Bible stuff, but I don't like that very much. But this is the tension. This is the struggle that the Jewish person would then be going through, looking and saying, why didn't more of my people receive Messiah? Um, so here's some of our questions to understand what God's hardening really is about. Uh, does this mean that man has no free will? Like, am I just a pawn? Like an actual pawn in chess, like I just get moved, God moves me over here, everything I think, everything I want to do, is that all just simply not my will? Now, if you've been following in Romans, you see I fully believe in free will. I think the Bible clearly teaches it, but that's a question that comes up. Um, does God harden people who don't deserve it? I mean, he gives mercy to people who don't deserve it. Does he harden people who don't deserve to be hardened? Is it just like mercy in that sense? Um, does God's hardening relate to salvation? I mean, he hardened Pharaoh to not let the people go, but does he harden people in regards to salvation? Does he harden them to keep them from coming to Christ? I mean, this is, this is a hard question, and it's difficult to find answers for it, in all honesty. So hopefully we can answer that tonight. Uh, what other biblical examples are there of hardening? Because there are several, and I'd like to look at some of them to help round out our, our understanding of this concept. And, of course, then what was Paul's ultimate point in Romans, why he brought up this issue. So let's start with this example, Pharaoh. Why is Pharaoh brought up as an example? To, it's to prove Paul's point that God, God can harden whoever he wants. He can harden the king of Egypt for all he wants. He just harden whoever he wants. Now this, this I think, and we'll get into Exodus now. In fact, I encourage you to turn to Exodus. Starting in Exodus 4, I will flip through several, in order, several passages in Exodus. And I think you'll want to follow along because it'll be, um, it'll be um, like connecting the dots on the issue of hardening. Um, I think Pharaoh is an example of God hardening judicially, what we call judicial hardening, or hardening you because you deserve it. That's the idea of this kind of hardening. It's not simply an unbiased, randomly, just decide to harden you just because, but you deserve it and you get it. So starting in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now that word, um, hazak, in the, in the Hebrew, what it means is to actually to strengthen. Harden might not be the best translation, but it means to strengthen or to firm up something. And so God is firming Pharaoh's heart. He's firming 
Pharaoh's heart. He's solidifying something in its current position. That's when you harden something. You're just solidifying in its current, already focused position. Pharaoh's heart is already defiant against God, already rebellious against God, and God's going to stiffen that, make him more stubborn in that. Um, so it's not to, to cause him to become evil, but it locks him down in that place. That's my understanding of hardening. I could get into a whole lot of different language stuff, but I think let's just keep it simple if, as much as we can anyway. And uh, let's just say that. It's to solidify in a current position. So God says, I'm going to harden him. But let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. Um, in Exodus 5, I won't read this passage, but in Exodus 5, what we have is we have Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, who's Yahweh that I should listen there, serve him? or who, who, who cares? And he just says, no. There's nothing in there about Pharaoh's heart being hard. Nothing about God hardening it. None, none of that. Nothing's there. He just simply says no. Implication in the text, he was already positioned that way to start with. Exodus 7, verse 3. Exodus 7, verse 3. While you're on your way there, let me point out. The fact that Pharaoh resisted immediately and naturally is very likely why God raised him up as Pharaoh and not somebody else. He wanted someone who would resist him. That's the implication. God is doing some, something like chess in this. He's, he's putting him in position so he can do things through him, show his power and show his name through Pharaoh. So we don't have a passive God who's not interacting with people. Um, Exodus 7 verse 3, God says again, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. That's another Hebrew word. It means a different word. It means to make hard. Kashat. It means to make hard probably pronouncing it wrong because because I'm American <laughs> but um, but here we have another Hebrew word but but notice this so far God has said twice that he will harden Pharaoh's heart has God hardened his heart yet no and this is where some of the commentators get it wrong they act like these statements are God actually doing it when God's saying he'll do it and him doing it are two different things I will do it future tense let's read on Exodus 7 verse 13 Pharaoh responds to God telling him and, and plagues and things like this. And it says, And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Now, this is not God doing the action. This is just simply Pharaoh's heart just grew hard. Pharaoh's not doing it. God's not doing it. It's just a natural result of what's going on. His heart grows hard. Now, if you want to say, well, obviously God did that. Well, there's a whole other group of people who will say, obviously, Pharaoh did that. I'm going to stick with the text and say, no one's given credit for this. It seems as though this part of his heart growing hard is a natural result of the actions that are going on. Maybe it's not intentional, but it's just a result of him hearing truths of God, rejecting them, and then his heart grows hard. Exodus 7, verse 14. And the Lord said to Moses... Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. So now his heart is, is hard. And this is a different word in the Hebrew. And it means like heavy. His heart is heavy. Kaved. There you go. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. You don't know. Neither do I. <laughs> Kaved. Okay. Uh, Exodus 7.22. Let's keep reading. He says, Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. They copied the, the, the Aaron with his staff and things like that. They're, they're, they're copying the plagues. They're copying everything they can copy. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord said. Now, again, God hasn't done anything to Pharaoh's heart directly. That's not what the text says. 
Um, it's just his heart grew hard. Now turn to Exodus 8, verse 15. Because this is where Pharaoh actually hardens himself. Not God, Pharaoh. Exodus 8, 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. So the construction of the sentence is different. It's not just his heart grew hard with no person, no agent doing it named or, or even implied in the, in, the, in the language. Now Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. Scripture does talk about this, how you can harden your own heart. And here's an example of it. Um, Exodus 8 verse 19. Let's go four verses down. It says, Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. Now it's just a passive growing heart. No, no active person given credit for doing it. Exodus 8.32 But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. So who's hardening the heart now? Pharaoh. Exodus 9 verse 7 Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed not even one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. So again, no one specifically named. So, so far along the progress we have, Pharaoh's heart becoming hard for no identifiable reason except for that he's rebelling against God. Then we have Pharaoh making his own heart hard. And then finally in Exodus uh, chapter 9, we have God hardening Pharaoh's heart. I think the order of these events is important and this is how God inspired it to be written. So we should take note. Exodus 9, 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not heed them just as the Lord had spoken to him. This is that same word, to strengthen or to firm up. And I do think this is an example of judicial hardening. Do you think Pharaoh deserved to have his heart hardened by God at this point? Let's see. He oppressed, oppressed the slaves in Egypt. He resisted God. He hardened his own heart multiple times. And then finally, God then hardens Pharaoh's heart. I think he deserved it. And I think we, I think we could all agree on that. Um, then... Exodus 9.34, Pharaoh is going to harden his own heart again. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart. He and his servants. Now, they're the ones doing the hardening. And then, this is probably the last one I'll quote. There's more, <laughs> because it keeps going like this through the book of Exodus. But let's go to Exodus 10, verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him. Now, God says, I have, past tense, hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants. What's interesting is this is just a few verses after 934, where it said that Pharaoh and his people, they hardened their own hearts. And then, and this is the first time it's his servants are brought up with it, right? Pharaoh and his servants, they hardened their hearts. And then a few verses later, God goes, I hardened the heart of Pharaoh and his servants. It seems to me that there's some synergism going on here. There's something going on where Pharaoh's doing a hardening and God is doing a hardening. I think that seems pretty obvious from the text. And a lot of people seem to want to avoid it. They want to make it all Pharaoh's fault or they want to make it all God's sovereign hardening. And it seems to me the text is showing that both is happening. God seems to be taking credit for Pharaoh in verse nine, chapter 9, verse 34. Um, hardening himself and his servants hardening themselves over here in chapter 10, verse 1. So it seems to be both. How could this happen? Well, let me give you one totally pathetic theory. <laughs> one, one really wimpy idea. Okay, here's the thought. Um, I remember uh, growing up, there's times where, you know, you become like a, 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 an attitude detector, a mood detector, if you will, for your parents. 
you know when to ask for things and when not to ask for things. And you're thinking to yourself, if I ask if I can go to Knott's this weekend, if I ask right now, they're going to get mad instead of happy, right? They're going to say, not only no, but I'll probably have like chores or something. It's a bad moment to ask. But if I ask later on, maybe when they're in a better mood, perhaps then the answer will be yes. Sometimes without doing actual heart surgery on someone, you could actually go to them. You could influence them simply by bringing words at certain times and then knowing that they'll probably respond in certain ways. Um, I am not saying that's the whole answer because God hardened Pharaoh's heart. This seems like an activity that God did to Pharaoh's heart. But I think that there's an element of truth that's there that'll come in more as we, uh, as we keep reading other, looking at other passages. So we're going to look at some other examples tonight as well. Um, God, God's sovereignty is seen then in that he picked Pharaoh to, and raised him up to be this you. You're going to be the Pharaoh of Egypt. I know you. You'll resist me. And I'm going to harden your heart. But I think it's safe to say you deserve it. That seems to be the teaching. Does that make you uncomfortable? Welcome to the club. It doesn't actually bother me at all, to be honest. But a lot of people are uncomfortable by this. But I want to stick to just what the text says. So, let's read on. In verse 19 of Romans 9, after bringing up Pharaoh, he brings up an issue. We talked more about this last week, so I'm not going to labor on it this week. But I want to cover it in order. It says in verse 19, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? This is great, right? Who do you think you are? This is the who do you think you are passage. Mike, are you saying God can just do whatever he wants and he's above impeachment? He's above appeal? He's above my judgment? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Finally, you get it. Of course he's above your, your appeals and impeachments. You, there's no hashtag not my God. There's no, you don't get to do that. You don't get to do this with God. God is right, I'm wrong. If I disagree with him, it's because I'm wrong. If I think he's unjust, it's because I'm wrong. It's because, look at me. How much do I know? Like, I don't understand, like, why apples have skin. Let alone why God hardens Pharaoh's heart. There's an element of humility that we need to have here. And I just want to say skeptics, they attack the Bible and they attack God, and sometimes they attack God as though he's not just. And here's what they're doing. They're saying, hypothetically, let's say the God of the Bible exists, and that he's really there, and he really did all the stuff in the Bible. I think that God's morally wrong. And I'm like, your hypothetical is insane. Like, it's philosophically bankrupt to think that, that you, like, I think that you're, I mean, you're like the ant shaking their fist up into the sky. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, so, Get some perspective, is what I'm going to say. Get some perspective on who God is. Um, I am not here to defend God hardening Pharaoh. Or attack it. It's not my place. I want to explain it to the best of my ability. Understand it biblically, the idea of hardening. But I'm not here to defend it. I'm not standing here like, oh, I have to explain this the right way so people will like it. If you don't like it, then you need to change your opinion about things. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know a better way to put it. Um... God is God. So, this, this, however, this passage, who will, who will resist his will? How can you find fault? And then the answer, how can you complain against the creator, basically? Come on, you have no place for that. This doesn't mean that God's hardening is arbitrary, and that's a mistake people make. This is not saying God hardens people for no reason. 
It's just saying you have no place to argue with God about it, but you can seek to understand it. You can seek to learn from it, of course. So nowhere is it taught that God's hardening is arbitrary. His mercy comes not according to works. The passage clearly taught that. God gives us mercy not according to works. It didn't say the same thing for who God hardens, did it? Read the passage. It didn't say God hardens people not according to works. It didn't say that. It just said that about mercy. That's interesting. Um, so, uh, in fact, perhaps more people deserve to be hardened than do get hardened. I would be thinking, yes, <laughs> that's probably quite true. Um, so, the Bible here is not teaching, I think, it's not teaching unconditional election. We talked about that uh, over the past two weeks. And here it is not teaching this unconditional reprobation. It's talking about how God hardens some people. Um, it's just teaching mercy is not of works and, and it's not of genealogy and that God hardens whoever he wants to. That's what we've learned so far from Romans 9. And that you have no valid complaint against God. There's no version of the story where you get to say God made a mistake or he's at fault. His acts are not subject to our review, but we should be learning from him. So more of that is in the last study last week, which was uh, titled A Non-Calvinist Interpretation of Romans 9. Uh, that's up on YouTube if anybody wants to look at it. So God can do whatever he wants, but here's the question for the rest of the study. But what does he do? I agree, he can do whatever he wants, and, he's, and I'm, he's unimpeachable. But what does he do? It's not arbitrary hardening, as we'll actually find in the text. Verse 21, we'll keep reading here. Romans 9, 21. Does, the, does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Simple answer. Yes. Yes. Does not God have the ability and, and the right to do whatever he wants with the things he makes? If I draw a picture, decide I don't like it, I can crumple it up and throw it away. I have that right. It's my picture. You do it. That's wrong. That was my picture. So simply, yes. But now let's get more detail in verse 22 on how God does this. How does he handle the clay? That's us. Verse 22, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which had, he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now, I know some pastors who, uh, teachers, who would, would look at the first two words of verse 22. What if? And they go, it's entirely possible that verse 22 and 23 aren't even how God does things. It just says, what if? It's an if. Now, I see that as their escape hatch. I don't think that's the, the teaching of the passage. I think it's saying, what if? And it's a hypothetical that's actually true. I think it's actually a truth. And so I don't see an escape hatch there. Some people do, just not my opinion. I think it, in fact, is a climax of a point he's been driving toward. God has the right to do what he wants. Israel, including hardening some of Israel and bringing the gospel to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. That's the point. So this is also, this passage is about salvation. Earlier, I'd said things weren't. Jacob and Esau, that wasn't about salvation. That was about promises to Israel and all that. This is about salvation. I mean, read the text, right? The vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. This is the salvation issue, isn't it? So, let's look at it. There's two different groups. But, lest we get confused, the two different groups are not those whom God has mercy on and those whom God hardens. Yes, God can have mercy on whom he wants and he can harden who he wants, but these are not the two groups in this passage. That's not supported by the text. These are two different groups. Yes, one of them he has mercy on. That's in verse 22. 
the vessel, uh, excuse me, verse 23, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. So he has mercy on those. But does verse 22 describe someone God hardens actively, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction? No. No. And if you think that that means God hardened them, you read the passage wrong. The words themselves don't mean that. Now, I want to explain the difference between an active verb and a passive verb. An active verb is, is right, I'm doing it. I ran a mile. That's an active verb. And that, this is the kind of thing we have in verse 23. God's actively in the wor- working in the lives of the saved. That he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared. God's doing the action he prepared beforehand for glory. But who's doing the action in verse 22? It just says the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. It's a passive action. God is not doing this. They're prepared. By what? By just the circumstances, by all manner of different things, but it's not said that God is doing it. God specifically, it's, a, it's not equal. He works in the lives of the saved, but the unsaved, he allows that to happen. That's what's being taught here. So there's two different groups, right? The unsaved, and what does God do? He endures them with much long-suffering. So God is, he's, he's enduring them with long-suffering. That's his treatment of the unsaved. I'm enduring you. I'm suffering long with you. That's not hardening. Not that God couldn't harden some of them, but that's not what the passage teaches. Um, and then there's the saved in verse 23, and God's action is he's preparing them. He's the one preparing them beforehand for glory. Now, if you see those, those verbs, I think it, it changes your understanding of the whole passage. And you also recognize that it's not a description of hardening versus mercy. It's mercy versus not mercy. That's the, that's the difference. So he treats them this way for two different reasons. Uh, the unsaved, he's going to show his wrath and power, um, which is good. This is good that God shows his wrath. His wrath is glorious. Mine is glorious, right? Mine's bad. My, my wrath is not good. But God's wrath is glorious because it's righteous, it's perfect, and it, and, it, and it restores righteousness and brings justice and all this. So him showing his wrath, it, it really is like a flash forward to the end of the book of Revelation where God judges. And I do believe hell is a just and proper and right thing. It is which is why Jesus had to die to save us from justice. One of, the, one of these days, I want to do a topical study on hell and the justness of hell, uh, but that's not today. So we'll come back to that some other time. And then for the saved, he wants to make known the riches of his glory on these vessels of mercy. The riches of his glory. So it's pretty pretty strong differentiation between the saved here and the unsaved. Now this seems, to, in my mind, to come against uh, the doctrine of predest- double predestination, the idea that God picks some for salvation and picks some for damnation. Because in the passage, he's just enduring, and the other ones he's preparing. So he's actively in their lives, he's not active in their life, and that's why they end up being lost. Um, But then there's the point he drives to in verse 24. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And we'll get more on that as he continues. His his point to remind you, um, Israel is at least partially hardened while the gospel is being opened up to the Gentiles. And we'll get more into that later. But now that I've given you that, you probably have more questions than answers. And so what I want to do for the rest of tonight is look at some other biblical passages related to hardening to round out our understanding of how God does this. Because as you read it, you realize Romans 9 gives us very little information about hardening. It brings up the topic very blatantly, but it doesn't tell us a lot about it. But the other passages of Scripture do. So we're going to look at those. Um, First off, relating to judicial hardening, we have Romans 1, which is in the same context as Romans 9. Um, It's in the same book, right? It's relating to similar issues. But if I started in verse um, 18, 
of Romans chapter 1, I'll read it to you. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, and it describes these men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is an action they're taking, right? Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. So that's general revelation. They know there's a God. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. But, and look at this progression now, as they've rejected the truth of God. They became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. And here's judicial hardening uh, along these lines. It says, verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. Notice the therefore. Because of their rejection of God, God gave them up to uncleanness, judicial hardening. In the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This was their choice. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, for this reason, because they chose idols over God, God gave them up to vile passions. So then they, sin is, is taking over. They're becoming slaves of sin. That's also judicial pardoning. It, it, it then goes on to describe particularly homosexual behaviors and other things like that. Verse 28, another judicial hardening passage. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. They did not like to retain God. I don't want to retain you, God. So I'm going to, okay, God goes, I will give you over then. This is judicial hardening. This is the same as what I see with Pharaoh, isn't it? He judicially hardened Pharaoh in a very similar fashion. This is very consistent. So that's an example of hardening. Uh, both parties are in play, just like with Pharaoh. Man choosing rebellious things, God giving them over to those things um, as a judgment. Another verse that really strongly supports this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, we're going to read about here um, in times, the Antichrist when he comes, and God describes it this way. And once, you, once the topic hardening comes up, you see how much it's actually in the scriptures. It's in there a lot. It says, And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. So there, they, there's deception. And what, why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. So they reject the gospel. Verse 11, And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion. There's a reason for the hardening. Mercy comes, grace comes freely, you don't deserve it. Hardening, oh, you earn it. That's the message. For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. They rejected the truth, they're given over to the lie. Now I want to bring it to Jesus because Jesus actually talked about hardening as well. And once I share this with you, you will realize how much Jesus actually does this. This is really interesting, right? Turn to Mark chapter 4. What was Jesus' common public way of teaching things? He would teach them in parables. Parables. And you know the passage. You Probably a lot of you are already thinking of it. You're like, ah, I see what you're calling with this, right? Jesus taught in parables. Well, in Mark 4, verses 11 and 12, he tells them why he teaches in parables publicly and privately he explains things in more detail. Mark 4.11, it says, And he said to them, To you, the disciples, it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, 
all things come in parables so that so that seeing they may not see or they may see and not perceive and hearing they may hear and not understand lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them i see no way to interpret this other than to say jesus you taught in parables so that the masses who were hearing you would not understand and would not accept the gospel that's what it says now there's more to the story but i want to understand the text this is the teaching of scripture lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Pharaoh was not necessarily hardened against salvation. He was hardened against letting the people of Israel go, all that. These people, there is a blindness that's coming upon them to keep them from perceiving the gospel, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Um, now, before I move on, I want to mention something, because those of you who are worried, that this, it gets better, don't worry. But um, there's more to the story. But this, I think, pre presents a real challenge, if you're a Calvinist, to the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity or the inability to say yes to the gospel. It, you're born with it. You, you live your life with it. You cannot say yes to the gospel of Jesus. So then the question is, if you can't say yes, then why would Jesus be doing things to keep them from saying yes? If you can't say yes. And then the other doctrine about regeneration is that you can't say no once God regenerates you. So that you don't really make a choice when it comes to the gospel, not, not in the sense that most of us would think of choice. I think that this presents a challenge to the doctrine of total depravity that I don't know how to overcome. I, I, this week I've tried asking a lot of Calvinist people, like who are guys I respect, who are informed Calvinists, and none of them were able to give me a, a good answer, except one said, um, well, none of them answered they just they weren't sure which is not i'm not trying to blame them but i think it's an unanswerable question possibly i'm still open to hear an answer but i haven't heard it because um, i try to find the best answers for my to come against me before i present stuff you know um, but one said well you know the god never hardens people in regards to the gospel he simply never stops them because they're already hard against it he hardens them in other ways and i go well that would be consistent calvinist view however jesus seems to debunk that doesn't he in mark so I want to say five things about this. <laughs> I forgot my thumb. Um, five things about this. One, this is an overlooked reality. Jesus, he taught in parables all the time. In fact, he did this, it seems, sometimes to confuse people. Certain people. He wanted them to be confused about these issues, at least temporarily. He wanted them to be confused. Then you get to like John 6 and you're like, Jesus, you're like antagonizing certain people. I mean, he is. He's like antagonizing. It's like he's riling them up. And it's like, you could have explained that better, but chose not to in order to invoke the response you got. So this is the, if I ask now, I know how they'll respond. And God ultimately has the authority to do this. Um, now, that's the first thing. So this is an overlooked reality, and a lot of scripture kind of comes more clear in the New Testament, especially the Gospels, when you realize this is going on. It's a hardening of Israel. Um, second, let me say this. Just like Pharaoh, just like Pharaoh, the people that are hearing these parables are not without prior issues. It's not an arbitrary thing. Because Jesus says in John 5, right before John 6, where he antagonizes them, in John 5, verses 46 and 47, listen to what he says to the same crowds. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Oh, 
so there's not just this kind of like blank slate and Jesus comes and just messes with people. Rather, there's a hardened heart already. There's a unbelief already existent in them and he's simply allowing them to maintain that. That's consistent with what he did with Pharaoh as well. That's the second thing. The third thing is this. This hardening that, that came through Jesus' parables is temporary. It was temporary. It was not hardening unto damnation. Yes, it was hardening to keep them from turning to the gospel at that moment. But how many of these same Jewish men and women were there at Pentecost when over 3,000 people got saved? Another preachment, when over 5,000 people get saved. How many of these same people are getting saved? This is not a permanent, lifelong hardening. And that's not how hardening works in scripture. It's not as though God hardens and it's game over. Otherwise, why did he have to harden Pharaoh so many times? You don't have to keep hardening something if it's not necessary. If it's one hardening and it's game over, that's not seeming to be the teaching of Scripture. So it's temporary. Number four. I did it right this time. Uh, the, there's, there's two different purposes that he seems to have for this, this, this temporary hardening for Israel. One is it gets Jesus crucified, which is according to the plan of God for the salvation of mankind, a worthy cause. It is the rejection of Israel that gets Jesus crucified. Then after he's crucified, many of the same people receive Christ. So it's about a timing issue. God is, God is sovereign. He's working in the lives of humankind to accomplish his will. Um, two, the second end is that it brings the gospel to the Gentiles. So more people get saved as a result. The rejection of the gospel through, uh, through the minority, which is Israel, brings it to the majority, which are the Gentiles. So God is at, God, God is at work. And five, number five. Jesus is doing this kind of blindness without heart surgery. He does it with teaching. He does it with bringing certain teachings and certain words into the, into the minds of the people that they accept or reject based on their previous condition. So this is like a previous condition triggered by confrontation with certain messages that then results in a hardening that was temporary for many and some it was permanent because they continued to reject the gospel. So that's like the, if I ask now, he'll get mad kind of thing. <laughs> um, I think so. Which is why you see the disciples dealing with this when they go, Jesus, these are some hard sayings. And he goes, well, you want to leave me? And he goes, where else are we going to go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so their, their hearts were not that way. So there's five truths about the, that, that way Jesus does things. Now, I don't know about you, but I get excited about this stuff. I think this stuff is neat. I mean, it's like just letting the sword of the spirit like just decipher and, and bring these things, bring clarity in these things. Um, I want to look at one more uh, passage of scripture. I'm just going to summarize it for you because of time. But it's Jeremiah 18 and 19. It would take too long to teach through two chapters of Jeremiah. Have you read Jeremiah? It's kind of, it's a big book, long chapters. Uh, Jeremiah 18 and 19, and it speaks of the potter and the clay. And it's the other passage in scripture which gets into much more detail about the potter and the clay. And God here being the potter and Israel being the clay. So, but the analogy here, the analogy in Jeremiah does not fit the, the Calvinist understanding, which, which that's understanding I think, is, I think is incorrect on Romans 9. Um, let me give you some reasons. First thing happens in Jeremiah 18 and 19, right? The first thing is there's the clay and it's marred in the potter's hand. Or it didn't work for the purpose of the potter, which, which actually makes sense. There's certain clays that you use for certain things. And the softer clays and stiffer clays and things like that. And the clay doesn't work. So the potter, he makes a different vessel out of it. The potter's trying to make one vessel out of it. The clay's not working, so it's marred and he makes a different vessel out of it. That, that's the implication I understand. Um, second, right, he makes a new shape and that shape will work. And the point I think in Jeremiah is God saying, Israel, if you're not going to do what I want, I'm still going to find a use for you, even in your rebellion. 
That seems to be the message of Jeremiah 18 and 19. Then the third thing we learn, the application to Israel, this story about the potter, he then tells Jeremiah, tell him this story and then tell them the point is repent because I will make you into a lesser vessel, a vessel that's going to be not happy. You know, you could be like this, the vase for the flowers on Valentine's Day, or you could be the spittoon. There's different kinds of vessels out there, but I'm going to find a use for you. And um, so, so such is true for all of us. Um, so God, if they would repent, would fashion them into something better. So whose will does he leave this, leave this on? Upon theirs. That's the passage in Jeremiah. And then fourth, they don't repent. They mock Jeremiah. They reject this message. And so God brings disaster upon them. And then he tells us why in Jeremiah 19 verse 15. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring on this city and on all her towns all the doom that I have pronounced against it because they have stiffened their necks. A euphemism that means basically the same thing as a hardened heart. A stiffened, I will not turn, my neck is stiff. I won't change my direction, Lord. I'll continue in my rebellion. A loose neck is, I'm going to go the way you want me to go. (laughs) Turn and I will turn. Um, So they stiffen their necks that they might not hear my words. So the passage in Jeremiah 18, 19, a, a parallel concept of the potter and the clay, it supports divine acts and sovereignty and the free will of man. So does Romans 9. So does the story about Pharaoh. So do the parables about Jesus. It all consistently supports, yes, a divine hardening, but a justified judicial hardening that's not necessarily permanent. And uh, so, I, okay, so here we go. Here we go. This is the end of the study. I'm going to give you nine conclusions I have about biblical hardening, about how God hardens us. Nine conclusions. Um, there's probably more we could give, but here, here they are. Number one, that hardening does not change your mind. It prevents you from changing your mind. <laughs> hardening doesn't make you do things you, wouldn't, you, you don't want to do. Rather, you're stuck in the thing that you want to do. You're stuck as you are. That, that's in the very verbs of hardening and the concept of stiff necks and things like this. You continue in the direction you were already going. That's the nature of hardening. So it's not like God's, like, you're like, I really want to get saved. And God's like, no, zap. And you're like, I don't want to get saved. Like, this is not the salvation you're looking for. You know, like, like that's, not, that's not what we're getting at. Um, so that's in the verbs themselves. We talked about that in all the passages we went through. Number two, that God may harden through specific acts rather than heart surgery. He could, he could actually do something to the heart or the, you know, what, what the heart represents here. Or he could harden through acts, like Jesus being antagonistic and causing you to be confronted with how humble you'll really be in his presence. And, um, and sometimes people go through hard situations or they're hurt by the church or something like that, and it draws out a hard, bitter heart. And God uses those means or those situations to bring out a, a change of heart in the negative. Um, though he can and has a right to mess with hearts if he wants to. And he doesn't even have to do it judicially, but that's how God does it, because he's just. Number three, that hardening isn't necessarily about salvation. It may include salvation. It might be that someone's hardened to the gospel, but it can also include a general attitude of rebellion to God. It can, it can include um, just the, the fact that Pharaoh is like, I'm going to continue to say no to releasing the Israelites out of Egypt. That wasn't salvation. That was, a, that was just saying no to a command of God. So it could, it could relate to various things. It's, a, it's, a, it's more complicated than sometimes we want to simplify it. Uh, number four, that hard, hardening, I love this, is not necessarily complete or permanent. Complete hardening would be I'm hardened in every way against God. I will always say no, and I'm stuck that way forever. That would be permanent. 
is not necessarily either of those things. Otherwise, why is Pharaoh hardened multiple times? Otherwise, it was just a, it's like a, a, a switch. God flips, and then you're permanently resistant to everything he does and does. Then that wouldn't be there. It wouldn't be multiple times. And Pharaoh, in case you didn't notice, he ended up letting them go. So he did end up letting them go in the end. Um, also, we have the thousands at Pentecost who end up being saved. And and we have in Romans 11.23, where it says about these hardened Israelites, which is, I'm not speaking of every Jew even today. We're talking speaking from Paul's perspective in his time. Um, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. It's not necessarily permanent. Praise God. That's good news. I like that. That's, that's really sweet. So it's not simply an issue of predestination. We're talking about how God's working in our lives dynamically throughout our lives. Softer, softer, harder, softer, harder. These things are happening. And hardening's used a lot. This is number five. Hardening's actually used a lot. When you look at the parables of Jesus, you look at the story of Pharaoh, you look at the future prophecy about the end times and the Antichrist. It's like this issue of hardening, blindness upon Israel. This is, this is uh, used a lot. Number six. Those who are hardened deserve it. They deserve it. It's not, it, it's, it's not equivalent of mercy. You know, salvation's by grace. Hardening, oh, you earn that. <laughs> Judgment is earned. And so that's the case here. Um, they resist the revelation of God, like Romans chapter 1 says. They disbelieve special revelation. You, you didn't believe Moses, so you don't believe me. That's John chapter 5. Um, the Second Thessalonians passage, they all speak of a previous position of the heart rejecting God and then a result of hardening. Um, they even hardened themselves many times in the passages, like Jeremiah. Number seven, though mercy is said to not be of works, hardening is never said to be unrelated to a person's works. And that's a mistake I think people make in the passage. Specifically, mercy is not of works. He really labors at that point, Paul does in Romans. Hardening is never said to be not of works. Uh, in fact, the, it, it, I think it's implied the opposite is true. Um, number eight, number eight, and this is for my Calvinist friends. I just want you to consider this, at least understand the non-Calvinist position, or at least my, my position on this. And hopefully it's not a bitter issue at all, but just something that I think the scripture teaches and it's worth holding scripture up over our traditions to consider. Um, it's not a choice between mercy and hardening in scripture. God hardens specific people for specific purposes and for specific reasons, but it's not as though harden means chosen for damnation. That's not the text. It's not a choice between mercy and hardening. Paul just establishes that God can harden. That's his point in Romans 9. And he has hardened a large part of Israel during a season for a purpose. But they could still be grafted back in. Um, and we'll get back there into chapters 10 and 11. You'll see how glorious God's plan is for the future of Israel and how much he loves them and, and how much the offer of salvation for them is, is uh, still there and, and eagerly there for them. And then number nine, is the last point for today, and then we'll do Q&A if you guys have questions. You, I hate to say this, you can become hardened. You can harden yourself. You can rebel against God, receive a judicial hardening in your own heart, in your own life. And this can happen to believers, I believe, as well. Since hardening is not always a salvation issue, it can happen to any of us. I think as we conclude, we should really be thinking, is my heart soft right now to the Lord? Are all my defenses down before God? Are all my excuses nowhere to be found before the presence of Almighty God? Am I the clay who's like, I want to, you know, 
push away all things, Lord, that would keep me from yielding to your molding and your shaping. Because it's, it's fine and dandy to talk about God hardening hypothetical people or random people or ancient individuals. But I got to deal with this guy. I could harden my own heart, man. I remember talking with a guy who was in our, our, our program here at the church, the domestic violence program. And, um, he, he had been drinking himself into his grave. And he had, um, what was it, uh, liver disease? Cirrhosis of the liver? And he got, he, he got a pardon from the government because he was dying. Um, they said, you don't need to finish your classes. You can just go home and die. He was going to die. He wasn't a candidate for a transplant or anything like that. And so he met with me. He actually scheduled a meeting. He's like, Mike, can I just meet with you? I just want to say goodbye. I want to talk to you before I go home to die. And, um, and I met with him, and his, his skin was all discolored. His eyes were yellow, and he was not doing very good. And I preached the gospel to him one last time. And I said, look, you literally have nothing to lose. Just turn your heart to Christ. Repent and truly put your faith in him. And he tells me that he believes it's true, but he can't do it. Because after all the years of rejecting God and rejecting God and rejecting God, he just felt like he was in a place where he just couldn't do it. I still think there's hope for someone who says stuff like that. I think that's garbage and they should... They should turn. But you know what I think he was doing? He was hardening his own heart. And that's not the only person I've seen close to a deathbed who takes a Bible that's been handed to them and sets it down as far away as possible and puts magazines on top of it. Because they're hardening their hearts. Do not harden your heart. Not to your spouse. Not to your family. Not to your brother, your sister, your daughter, your friend. And certainly not to God. And if you would say, God, my heart is becoming hard, will you soften me, please? Fully believe God will answer that prayer. Fully believe he will. He has in my own life when I've felt my heart getting stupid. <laughs> and just pray, Lord, help me, please. I want to, want to, want to serve you, Lord. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, it starts there with that humility. All right, let's pray. And then we'll, uh, we'll take questions. Um, Father God, we are so grateful for your love, your heart towards us, which is so soft. <laughs> but Lord, we don't for a second kid ourselves and act like you are just a cosmic vending machine dispensing little heart-shaped candies all day long. Like You are a God of justice. You are a God who will bring right and appropriate wrath upon the rebellion of mankind if we harden our hearts to you. Lord, we know that even if you have hardened a heart, there's still opportunity for a person to be, to be saved even beyond that, and, and we're grateful for that. So we, we just pray for us, first for ourselves. We want to have soft hearts. God, help us to have soft hearts. Soft hearts towards you, soft hearts towards others. We want thick skin, Lord, but we want our hearts to be soft. Father God, we pray for our, our family and friends, and we, we, we just lift them up. Even images and mind, names that are coming to our mind right now, Lord, of a family who we would say, man, that person's heart is hard. We lift them up to you, Lord. You know their name. We pray, reach them, God, like you did Paul the Apostle. Reach them, Lord, please. Reach them. God, we pray for their salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think that in Romans 9, God strategically avoids the word create and uses words like, I raised you up 
Not I created you for this. I raised you up. You're the one I raised up because I was going to accomplish a task of your rebellion, in your rebellion against me. And then um, in Romans 9, the, the potter and the clay, it, it just says that he endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, not created for destruction. So it was their, their choices. You see their rebellion against God. And what is God doing while, while they rebel? He's enduring. He's suffering long with them. And they're prepared for destruction. And what's he going to use them for? Well, if you won't be submitted to the potter in, in his, in for a glorious purpose, then he will use you for a not glorious purpose, for his wrath and to make his power known. Um, so I think he avoids the word created uh, on purpose in order so that we don't get confused and think he's simply creating people for damnation. Because it's, that's, and that would seem to contradict some other passages that talk about how he wants people to be saved and he's reaching out to them and all, all day long I have re- reached out my hand to a disobedient and gainsaying people, you know, that it wasn't, otherwise he'd be like, of course you're disobedient and gainsaying. I want you to be and I made you for that. Rather it's, it's not, uh, it's not without human will being involved there. Yeah, yeah, and I and I don't discount him actually. I mean, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Like he took an action of stiffening Pharaoh in the things Pharaoh was already doing. It's judicial. It's justified. It's all that. But he's actually active in that as well. So he's not just watching. Like he like he kind of like set things in motion in a way to get it done. But he's also actively doing things. It's both of those facts. It seems to in all the examples we have, right? seems as though it begins with all... Because I want to be careful to say God has the right to do whatever he wants to do. Like, if he wants to make a world of puppets, he has the right to do that. Um, but I don't think... But I think that the examples do show the way God does it is, yeah. Like, Judas, I know who you were when I got you. You, you were stealing and all this stuff and, and all these things. So God's going to use even the wicked to bring his ends to be. I guess, you know, I, and I didn't, well, let me say a couple of things. First off, when it comes to blasphemy, the Holy, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, I don't fully understand the concept. I'm just going to be very honest. I really want to continue to study that more, look at it more. I've heard a lot of stuff about it. I've spent time on it. But just my own weakness of my own mind or whatever, I don't fully understand it. So I'm, I'm almost afraid to just explain it away. But definitely there is this, like, you will never be forgiven. That's the idea behind it for sure. Um, so is that connected to a hard heart? It would make sense, but I don't know... It, how to connect it there in the passage in a sense. So I'm just not really sure what to do with it, to be honest. But I do think I should have mentioned, though hardness of heart can be temporary, it can also be permanent. Like, you can be hardened and never change. And um, and maybe there's, there probably is a place, yeah, where you're, no, I think it's biblically justifiable to say there's a place where you're hardened to that point of no return. And, um, yeah, so I, I should have mentioned that actually during the study, but I didn't, didn't think to, I guess. Can you pray for someone's heart to be softened? Absolutely. And after all this and talking about Israel's hard heart, that's exactly what Paul does. And we'll get there in Romans 10. It's exactly what he does. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And so this is where when you take, when you take Romans 9 out of the rest of Romans, you start to think that there's this like, God just picked some for salvation, some for damnation. But when you plod through it carefully, thoughtfully, bring it into the rest of the context of Romans, you realize something. And that was the whole idea of hardening is, is, is necessarily permanent 
and it's not necessarily even unto damnation. It might just be, it might be self-hardening, it might be situational hardening, it might be God-hardening for a purpose, um, but we should never lose hope or stop praying. And we have so many examples of people whose hearts were hard um, and who got saved in scripture and in this room. <laughs> I mean, God is a God of grace and mercy and compassion. He's quick to forgive and slow to wrath. So yeah, absolutely. So scripture indicates, I mean, think about it. Read the, read the Bible and think about this. Is God really interacting with our prayers and doing things based on our prayers in the lives of others? Absolutely he is. Absolutely he is. And don't, I love, I think it's Luke 12. It, it, Jesus tells him a parable. And my favorite part of the parable is the introduction. It says, then Jesus told them a parable that they should always pray and not lose heart. And I'm like, that's all I need right there. It's just that reminder, always pray, not lose heart. 